Hello, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. For this week's episode, I wanted to look at the connections between anarchism and the philosophy of American pragmatism. Luckily, I have my dissertation director, John McGowan, who is an expert on American pragmatism. After the music, please enjoy our conversation on anarchism and pragmatism, focusing on the work of John Dewey. What if I told you that today we would be talking about a thinker who preferred voluntary association to coercive state action, altered the history of philosophy by adapting evolutionary thinking to questions of culture and social problems, had fruitful discussions with Jane Addams at Hull House, to this day has his name spat venomously by conservative intellectuals, intervened in the Thomas Huxley versus Herbert Spencer debate over social Darwinism by suggesting that they were both wrong because they ignored the fact that cooperation and collaboration were themselves the product of the evolutionary process and supported World War I as a potential turning point that could end the rising nationalism and militarism in Europe. Now, if I told you this philosopher was a sparkling prose stylist, Russian prince and political anarchist, we'd be talking about Peter Kropotkin, but we're actually talking about an American pragmatist who wrote difficult prose and maybe just maybe could be counted as an anarchist, perhaps an everyday anarchist. Joining me today to tell you if these similarities I found are just skin deep or if there's more is Professor John McGowan, one of my dissertation directors and the author of the books, American Liberalism and Pragmatist Politics. John, welcome to Everyday Anarchism. Thanks for having me, Graham. Always a pleasure to talk about John Dewey. <laughs> as, as long as you're not having to read too much John Dewey, right? That's right, small doses. Well, I actually read the entire book, The Public and Its Problems, um, for, for this uh, episode. And I think that's only the second or third time I made it all the way through uh, a book, a work of Dewey. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm proud of yourself. Yes, I am. I am. Well, it's, a, it's, it's quite an accomplishment. I've never made it through one of his longer works. You know, you and I have been talking about doing an episode uh, about anarchism versus liberalism, and I still hope to do that at some point. But one of the things that sparked me to do this episode is I've got an episode coming out in a couple of weeks. Well, it will have been a couple of weeks when we're talking, it will come out before this episode where I was working, uh, talking to a German social scientist who works on education, left-wing philosophy, democracy. And he said, you know, really the primary person I use in my work, I'm not using the anarchists, I'm using John Dewey. And I just thought, I'd already mentioned Dewey a number of times, including with interviews, and I thought it was time to bring this, this man who sits in the Kropotkin space in the narrative of American pragmatism, John Dewey, into the forefront. So thank you for, for doing this. So is there anywhere you would like to start with any of those list of characteristics I, I outlined? Well, probably we should start with the issue of the state, and we can move on to other things. But um, And maybe you want to just Give us that bolded quote from Public and Its Problems. <laughs> okay, so this is, there's lots of quotes that are very negative about the state in the Public and Its Problems. Um, but he says right here in the afterword, I think, the state is pure myth. And as is pointed out in this text, the very notion of the state as a universal ideal and norm arose at a particular space-time junction to serve quite concrete aims. Right. So there you have, that's a pretty good summary of Dewey, right? In the sense that, one, he is an historicist in the sense that he thinks that any kinds of human behavior or social institutions are a product of historical circumstances. So nothing is eternal and unchanging. Everything's related to a particular historical moment. And then the second thing is that he wants to be suggesting in this book that the form of the state as we currently know it, as he knew it in the 1920s. And he lists a bunch of these things, you know, elections and courts and uh, constitutions. But yeah, the, the, the Supreme Court and the Constitution specifically. I mean, I can't stop all the debates about January 6th run, running through my head as I am as I am reading this. 
Right. Well, I think in particular in the 20s, he's responding to the fact that, of course, it wasn't until the 30s that the Supreme Court actually finally decided you could outlaw child labor. <laughs> Up to that point, the Supreme Court said no. It was constitutional. There was no way that the state could infringe on contract. Now, that's problematic from our point of view, right? Because after all, what Dewey's upset about is that the state is not protecting citizens, not that the state is oppressing citizens. Yeah, but I would say his his concern, well, I guess the first thing is I'll say his his the first thing that he seems to me concerned about in terms of what you're talking about with historicist and that quote talks about concrete aims and the state is pure myth. He really objects to this narrative of, of history, that history was marching towards the formation of the democratic state. So this is, I guess, 60 or 70 years before Fukuyama's The End of History, which uh, for those of you who don't know, Fukuyama essentially said once the Soviet Union falls, there's no history left. Uh, liberal democracy has won. It's going to take some time. Like, it's, you know, it's not going to own the world immediately, but it's going to own the world forever. And then there's nothing left. And this is drawn from this German idealist Hegel. This is sorts of philosophy that I'll cover at some point in the podcast, but I don't need to do now. And Dewey says, no, we have not been marching to the American constitution and the Supreme Court and majoritarian democracy is not the aim of history. And we have not achieved it, whether you want to call it democracy or or whatever you you want to do and that that seems to me something that this notion of the sacred the sacred in american democracy is something that i strenuously object to right now but it seems to be very popular to me on both the left and right they just have different parts of uh the american system they want to hold sacred yeah i think that's right so for dewey what his one of his big themes and it's in this book and lots of his other books is that uh, institutions and habits uh, don't keep up with the flow of history. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about ossification. So for him, we have a state form that's no longer adequate to the particular needs of our era. Again, talking from his point of view in the 1920s, but he wants to make needs primary. Mm -hmm. And anything that gets in the way of our addressing needs effectively um, for him is, you know, he's ready to throw it out. Yeah. So he wants to say the Supreme Court at this point is standing in the way of progress. So I guess, well, we could go there. I mean, one thing is Dewey is deeply, deeply committed to a notion of progress. So we could talk about whether anarchists believe in progress. So to go back to where I started, Kropotkin does. Many anarchists do not believe in progress. David Graeber clearly does not believe in progress. Kropotkin does. And like um, Dewey, I think they have the same definition of progress, John, which is, a simply, uh, which is essentially the historical... Uh, unlocking of human potentiality via science and education. That, so, so in that sense, it's a non-teleological progress. It's not a progress that's marching towards a specific goal that you can see from a distance, but it is going to be more human ability to realize human potential. And in that sense, Kropotkin and Dewey both believe in progress and, and believe it's, I think, roughly the same thing. Does that sound like Dewey's definition to you? Yeah, I think that's right. So the question that raises for me in terms of thinking about things that are sacred, you can, you can have two models of progress. One would be a model, an elite model that said progress comes through the extraordinary genius. This is, you know, Ayn Rand and uh, Nietzsche and various other elitists who say, you know, the masses are just herds and they're just herd animals. And that the only thing that makes us progress is Every once in a while, an extraordinary person shows up and society should be organized not to keep the extraordinary person down. Or you can take the Dewey and I gather the Kropotkin line, which is what you're talking about is the human potential of every individual. Yes. And in that case, it does seem to me you are setting up something as sacred. You're saying that 
it is sacred, untouchable to deny individuals the opportunity to fulfill their potential. Yes, although I would also say both Dewey and Kropotkin object to the individual. So I would say like you, you're denying individuals to form. It is sacred that individuals should be allowed to freely associate with one another and form their potential. I think the social and the individual are crucial for both of them and both of them deny a distinction between these these two things, the social and the individual, as we're still arguing about today, I feel like. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So Dewey fully believes that the most fulfilling human flourishing, so let's use that term. I'm not sure that Dewey uses the term flourishing, but Dewey is very Aristotelian and the term flourishing comes from Aristotle. So let's say the goal of a, the, the mark of a good society is it allows individuals to flourish to their full potential. Dewey absolutely insists that individuals only flourish in association with others, that the deepest satisfactions in life come through our cooperation and association with others. Where he has trouble then is thinking about associations like nationalism that would deny to certain people, the opportunity for full flourishing, and also for associations that are actually built on exclusiveness of all kinds. You know, so, you know, we have a sports team and we can only take 15 yeah. and we cut the players who aren't the best, you know? Well, what have we done to those players? You know, we're supposed to have Berkeley softball Everybody bats. We don't keep score. <laughs> Rule, no rules. Yeah. Here for getting an out on the other team. We were <laughs> admonished for saying strike them out. Yeah, I mean this does this does seem to be a problem. And you know, to, I don't. You can tell me what Dewey's answer is. My my answer is that some some forms of exclusion can be acceptable within a wider form of inclusion. So right now, you know, there's people out there who uh, their primary talent is baseball, and if they do not get included in baseball, uh, they will not have anything to eat. And it seems to me that we can exclude people from baseball if we assure that everyone has some enough to eat and shelter. And Dewey does mention that, that flourishing is impossible with at least first this, yeah, this right. floor, whether you do it through UBI or however, however you want to do it. Without the floor of basic security, exclusion becomes very dangerous. And that's, I mean, that's, that's what capitalism is, right? If you get excluded, you lose and die, and that's your fault. Right. So of course, and Dewey doesn't really address this anywhere. But the question, of course, is how you organize to, to provide the floor. Who's going to do that work and, you know, make sure the benefits flow to the right people, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big administrative task. Yeah, this is definitely a sticking point um, in anarchist theory. I think Wilde says something like, someone needs to do that. And that's as far, that's as far I mean, Wilde was not a, a, a systematic thinker, but that's as, that's as far as Wilde is willing to go. Kropotkin says more, but it's not a plan. Um, in the novel, uh, the, the Dispossessed, I'm, I'm actually starting uh, on Monday, uh, a, a series of um, my newsletter about different, different things that are better anarchist works of science fiction and the dispossessed, because I'm not a big fan of the dispossessed, but in the dispossessed, they've got this, I don't know if you recall from this, this like, um, uh, it's like a message board where people post that goes over the entire moon, what they need and what they have. It's, it, it seems to me a, te a terribly bad way to think about an, an anarcho-communist society. It's like, oh, just go to the message board and say, oh, I'll help with mining and I'll bring some food when I go. I don't know, That's I'm skeptical of that. And it is interesting, so to think, pull that back to Dewey in the sense that, uh, as you know, from having slogged your way through the whole book, Dewey thinks democracy is two things, where democracy for him names the ideal. So let's say that's the, the thing you're 
you're aiming for politically. And of course, one is association, but the other, of course, is communication. Mm-hmm. So he thinks, in fact, that some, I don't know, you'd want to call it mechanism, mechanism would be bad, but some way in which both the individuals are able to communicate their needs so that their needs are going to be addressed by the associated community. But also the other crucial part for Dewey is that the, the, the actions, the strategies, the community adopts in order to address needs be governed by intelligence. Yeah. A big Dewey term, right? So it isn't as if, I mean, so the, the place where he addresses the administrative problem is by this appeal to the fact that somehow the community will be able through some process not quite ever specified to recognize the most intelligent intelligent way to proceed. Yeah, okay. Oh man. So we're we're go, we're going we're, we're we're leaving right away the sort of, you know, happy you know cloud of the democratic ideal in Dewey which sounds so wonderful and getting to the the, the difficult stuff, because it's true. that well, let's, gets, let's do the happy stuff for a minute. Then. <laughs> okay. So here's the happy stuff. The happy stuff is a deeply decentralized image of human society in which small groups of people, because they're face-to-face, and he's very clear about this, that the face-to-face is the, the primary place for satisfying, fulfilling interactions. And in the face-to-face, people actually recognize a common problem and work together to solve that problem or recognize a set of common needs and work together to supply those needs. And so the image there very much is of, there are functional places, we can prove this from human history and in our own experience, where people actually cooperate to solve a common problem. This does happen because none of us could survive as individuals if there was not cooperation. We're not self-sufficient. Yeah. So that's the happy view. The happy view is how do you keep that kind of ability in seemingly inbuilt in human beings to cooperate? How do you allow that its full scope? Okay, w- wonderful. Yes, and this comes up over and over again um, in the pragmatist tradition. It comes up in, in Emerson, who, I mean, in West's telling, Cornell West, and I think this is right, is sort of the godfather of the tradition. James doesn't write too much about society in this way, but he does speak about villages and towns occasionally. And then, of course, someone like Jane Addams or Mead, it is, it is this community that matters. And there is, again, at the same period of time, the parallel tradition, people like William Morris and a little later, Lewis Mumford, people writing about um, at Kropotkin again, the, the village, the association, the face-to-face life is where it happens. And then this is the anarchist move. And I think this is also Dewey's move. The, the sort of liberal narrative is, okay, we've created these giant assemblages that are definitely bad called corporations. And we've created these other giant assemblages that are probably bad called states or the government. And now the people and the village are just being smashed. But we need corporations because they make our stuff. And we need the state because we need someone to tell the corporation to stop smashing us. And that's the liberal democratic narrative that both Dewey and Kropotkin say, no, now you've just got two people smashing you, two groups smashing you, and you cannot recover the village, the individual, the neighborhood, the community with the state, which will just end up being a further centralized partner that will help the corporation to smash you. And that that narrative, I have a hard time, you know, it's easy to object to that narrative uh, when FDR or LBJ is is president, but otherwise it's very easy to, to, to agree with that narrative that yes, the role of the government is to empower the corporations. And certainly in the period that I wrote my dissertation on with, with you, I mean, they weren't even hiding it. If, if workers went on strike, the government would happily send people to shoot them. And so when you have people saying, oh, well, you know, we can use the state to control the government 
um, it's not clear to me that's happened more than a few times in the in the American context or across the world. Sorry, we can use the state to control the corporations. Right, right. Well, so, I mean, this gets us to the World War I question. So if, if in fact, there are two things that, let's say, liberalism is trying to guard against that anarchism wants to be to the left of liberalism, the two things we might say are concentrations of power. So, as you say, economic power gets concentrated into the hands of the corporations, the hands of capitalists, and liberalism says we need a counterbalancing power. So that's one thing, and you've suggested, as lots of people have, and with lots of plausibility, as you say, <laughs> that the state has not done a very good job of that. Um, and so maybe we should think of another strategy. But the second one, of course, is this one about the exclusionary logics of certain communities, mm -hmm. of which written most large is nationalism. And so, you know, Dewey actually ended up, of course, later regretting the fact that he had supported World War I. But there is this problem that if nationalism seems to have a deep appeal, and also that nationalism seems to take very aggressive forms, then do you need, what do you need to counterbalance nationalism? And I wish, I mean, I didn't know about Kropotkin. Kropotkin thought World War I was a good idea? Well, Kropotkin, Kropotkin sort of, uh, he, he, he foresaw um, a sort of proto-fascist movement in Germany. He thought that German imperialism would lead to something re resembling fascism. He certainly wasn't the only one. Yeah. And he thought the, the other governments in Europe were better except for the czar. And he thought the czar's government was sick and pathetic and could never do anything. So his greatest fear was German conquest. And so when World War I broke out, he thought finally the, 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 there will be no giant German imperialist army anymore. And that's the thing that scared him the most. So that you can just stack irony on, upon irony for that, for that view. But he thought it would end German imperialism. And he was, I think, quite rightly, very terrified of what German imperialism could could do. But of course, Emma Goldman, I mean, he was the by far most famous anarchist at that time. And all of the other prominent anarchists de denounced him. Uh, right, right. But, um, you know, in another way, you can say, well, he was right. He just didn't know it was going to take two wars to, <laughs> to, uh, to get rid of German imperialism. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's one hates to continually use the uh, Nazi stick, but of course that's always the thing. It says, what what were the options given such a virulent nationalism? And in our own, you know, let's hope it's farce way, you know, history repeating is farce instead of tragedy. Clearly the greatest danger today comes from the right. It doesn't come from liberalism. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, what, how are we to, address our, you know, market fundamentalists, our Ayn Rand enthusiasts of the current moment, um, you know, who basically want to say, as I say, you know, 90% of humanity is scum and don't deserve to flourish. <laughs> who cares? Uh, well, I can, I can tell you what I think Dewey would say. And I and I think I'll agree with this, which is there. There may be a certain amount of truth to the this idea that ninety percent of humanity is is scum and are not going to flourish. But it is precisely because of the centralization of power, uh, whether it's corporate power or state power, and the de the the loss of these voluntary associations, these communities, these villages, these neighborhoods where people can work together freely. So you've got, I mean, Kropotkin says this as well. I, I can't believe I keep saying this, but I can visualize a passage in my mind for both Kropotkin and Dewey and they have the same thrust, which is you have broken up the individuals into atoms where they have no bond at the bottom level. And then you have created out of these atoms an enormous machine, which cares absolutely nothing for the individual. And the task is to put everything back together, 
but starting with, to extend this metaphor, I guess, molecules. I believe Dewey even says molecules. you got to put it together at the bottom and then stack it up in such a way. And nationalism, nationalism lets you put together larger units and get people to work together, but it will never allow you to put together a complete uh, assemblage of humanity. Whereas it does seem that, um, well, without Hitler or someone conquering all of all of humanity, I suppose. Yes, I, think, I think that's right. I think the piece you leave out though is Dewey's solution is education. So Dewey thinks the way that you uh, habituate people to working in association and using their intelligence within association and respecting the other people and facing a common problem is entirely through education. I mean, he puts, that's why he's both so committed to it, but he, in some sense, puts all his marbles or all his eggs, I guess it's supposed to be, <laughs> not marbles, <laughs> in that basket, you know? So, so uh, he, he thinks what we've denied people in this atomization is precisely the, the formative experience of being in association. And that's what our schools should be doing. Yeah, for those of you, again, which I assume is most of you who are not that familiar with John Dewey, even though he is he is a legend to a certain extent on the left and also especially on the right, as still just the guy who the guy who they who they hate a hundred years later. Um, his greatest impact, at least over the past 60 years, has been in the field of education. Which is to say, uh, I mean, I would say if you if you're used to having a a small class, or if you have the idea of a small class where everyone sits around in a circle and and talks, if you think that's the right sort of learning, that's probably trickled down from Dewey. The other thing is if you were doing labs when you were learning science, that is also probably because of Dewey. This idea of experiential and experimental learning, Dewey was its greatest advocate, although I can also find you uh, Kropotkin and Emma Goldman and others also arguing for experimental and experiential learning almost at the exact same time. I think um, just to break in, I think that sitting around in a circle discussing is actually pretty watered down. That's weak tea, Dewey. I, I agree. Mean, really, what, really what Dewey thought was that you should set the kids in the third grade the problem of building a treehouse, And it was, first of all, presumably something they'd think, hey, that's pretty cool, let's build a treehouse." And secondly, he would think they would have to learn not only skills of cooperation and of forethought, but they'd have to learn a hell of a lot of math just to figure out how to, you know, and they'd have to, so he, he really wanted hands-on experiential learning, not so much book learning, and guided by a teacher, but really in some sense, throwing the kids in the deep end of the pool and giving them this experience of having a common need, a common problem that they then had to work in association to solve. Yeah, I don't think that the, the, the people sitting around uh, in a circle is necessarily, the, the, it's definitely not the best way to do it and do we want it far, far more. But I think the reason why we even have that weak tea uh, is is from Dewey. One of uh, one of the examples he uses, like the like the treehouse, is um, I think it's baking bread. The students want to bake bread, and the teacher says, "Okay, well, I guess you're going to have to build an oven." So before they even get to learning about flour and water and yeast, they have to learn physics and chemistry to build an oven. And then, whereas you, dear listener, are undoubtedly remembering learning physics and chemistry out of some book with someone, you know, shouting questions at you. And then you do one little experiment where there's already a right answer. And then you, you only can get an A in your lab if you prove that the ball fell in the way it was supposed to fall. Can you imagine if you just went to school one day and the teacher said, okay, it's the beginning of the year, what would you guys like to build? You decided on an oven or a treehouse, and you spent the rest of the semester learning both craft and cooperation, not to mention all of the book learning stuff. And you would even open books to learn it, but it's driving this true need you have to solve a project together. And then imagine these people go out into the world. What are they going to do? They're just going to do that 
over and over and over again. That's Dewey's vision. And I'm, it seems to me like it would work or at least work better than whatever it is we're doing now. It's tied deeply to, and this goes back to, I know comments you've already made in, in, on your, in your everyday anarchism world. Do we deeply believe that our personalities and inclinations and desires are socially formed? So he has no truck with any idea of human nature. So he thinks that habits are formed by early uh, activities. So that's why education is so crucial to him. Okay. I want to, I would like to keep talking about this. And at some point we're going to have to solve the, solve the problem of how do we, you know, get food and shelter to everyone, or perhaps we can solve that problem right now. Right. Which is to say, this would be Dewey's image. You do not have an enormous administrative problem of how do you make sure everyone has food and shelter if everyone in every town is used to this sort of problem solving thing and is used towards cooperation. The example Kropotkin always uses is, we're told we need centralization if we want big things that work across borders. And yet the trains will just smoothly go from one country to the next country. So somehow without any sort of central decision-making, people figured out how to make train tracks that were the same gauge. It took a lot. I see your, I I see your skeptical say, face. Kapratkin, did he ever travel? Yeah. <laughs> was, I mean, this was even within the United Kingdom, right? Where train companies were completely privatized. The gauges weren't the same. Not to mention between European countries. Well, I, okay, so my answer to that, having <laughs> written pretty extensively on this, is the reason why the trains didn't connect was because it was often more profitable to make sure that you didn't connect because you could make people, you know, uh, you could make people take care of that themselves and, and you had a captive uh, audience. Right, right. Of course, well, anyway, we won't, yeah. we won't argue right. this because we'll go too, down a rabbit hole too far. <laughs> okay. So, there is the problem, though, besides this. So I've, so I've laid this happy image out from both Kropotkin and Dewey, which is the these people who have, from the very beginning, gotten used to solving problems collectively can solve these problems. So both Dewey and Kropotkin are quite fuzzy on how the problems of food and shelter and collective action will be solved. And they, Kropotkin says openly, that's that's not my job. I'm going to be dead by the time that this happens. It's your job to figure it out once you've lived in this world. And Dewey doesn't quite say that, but I think he is also thinking that this will unleash human potential in a way to make this problem easier to solve. But now I want to talk about uh, expertise and intelligence, like you, like you mentioned, because there is a, there is a, there is a bad Dewey. Um, and we, we can start by talking about this in terms of World War I. So um, one story that I haven't covered in my podcast yet, but I will, is Dewey had this wonderful um, student named Randolph Bourne, who ha has now been claimed in the anarchist tradition, although he certainly wasn't part of the movement, but his writings are quite anarchist. And when Dewey supported World War I, Bourne attacked him vociferously. And if you put them side by side, Bourne is saying things you know, about humanity and compassion and war and militarism. And Dewey is saying things about numbers and statistics and the greater good. He wrote, I pulled this out for my students. He writes, there is a problem to be solved. And the problem to be solved is the marshalling of a huge army to go to Europe and kill lots of Germans. And born attacks this and says, you you know, the way I tell my students, you can think of like spreadsheets, like, oh, like, do we crunch the numbers and found out that X thousands of Americans would die and Y tens of thousands of Germans would die, but then there would be more flourishing on the back end. And he's like, well, this is a simple, this is a simple equation. And that is a, a, a dangerous part of his thinking that I, we've already gotten to a little bit when you talked about intelligence and how, how do we get the right experts? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I just want to go back to this as the notion of the sacred. So that Dewey, like most of the pragmatists, because so focused on consequences, 
is pretty thoroughly a utilitarian. Mm -hmm. And utilitarians are going to make these kind of calculations, right? If two deaths now save 10 lives later, then we should accept the two deaths now. And that it goes against a lot of our deepest moral feelings and moral intuitions that life is sacred and that no one should be in a position of saying, okay, I designate you two to die. <laughs> so that those 10, because I, you know, calculate those 10 will be better off. So, you know, this notion of human flourishing or this notion of, you know, giving each person the chance to fulfill their potential does seem to depend on some kind of notion of a kind of sacredness to each human life that can't be violated. So that's the first issue. The second issue then becomes to what extent anarchism is dovetails with something like pacifism in that anarchism is committed to the non-violation of individuals by any kind of concentrated power whether it be economic power, state power, patriarchal power. And so that taken to its logical conclusion, it would seem an anarchist should be a vegetarian <laughs> and a pacifist and maybe even a vegan, you know, and that, um, and, and born certainly seemed to be tending in that direction. You know, most famously what he had to say was war is the health of the state. I mean, he basically said, look, when it comes down to it, states exist primarily because of their monopoly of the means of violence, to use Max Weber's term. States prosper. They grow in power when their war-making powers are, seem to be needed or are exercised. Um, so all of which is to say, um, once you place decisions in the hands of certain people deemed uh, the decision makers, whether it's according to a cost benefit utilitarian calculus or some other, they always claim necessity, right? Nobody yeah. wants to go to war. It was forced upon us by circumstances. Um, you know, can you construct a society in which you don't have that kind of dependence. And then I guess, you know, then the final thing, then it'll take us back to the vaccines, right? I mean, when, when certain <laughs> situations arise, having people on hand who know something is sort of useful, you know? You and I couldn't create a vaccine. And when it comes to having it shot into our arms, we pretty much have to take it on faith. We could do wait and see and say, oh, 7 million people have taken it so far and only two have died from it. So it seems like it's pretty safe and it looks like it's being pretty effective. So, but on the, we don't know what they're putting into our arm. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like, yeah, we're gonna have faith in this because we think these people seem to know what they're doing. Same, you know, same thing when you take the car to the mechanic. Okay. <laughs> oh, there's so much to say in response to this. Um, so first, let me, let me take on the, the, the pacifist thing, which is, you know, anarchism, as you would expect, as a movement that um, refuses to have any sacred text or clear ideology, has many, many different hyphenated versions, anarcho this and anarcho that. Um, one of them is uh, anarcho-pacifism. And I think that, I mean, that, that certainly makes sense to me that anarchism leads to pacifism. But then, of course, you have the, you know, the sort of Marxist, like, you can be a pacifist after the revolution. So violence in the name of peace is acceptable in a lot of anarchist traditions, which is precisely what Kropotkin and Dewey were, were, were arguing for in the form of World War I, Defi uh, violence in the name of future flourishing. Emma Goldman's objection was not to violence. Emma Goldman you know, participated in the attempted assassination of Henry Clay Frick, Emma Goldman's objection was that it was state violence, that Kropotkin was siding with the czar and the king of England and whoever against Germany. The other, you know, three figures that loom large here is Tolstoy, 
um, and uh, MLK, neither of whom would accept the label anarchism, despite certainly being fellow travelers of the movement, because they uh, saw that anarchism was connected to violence. And then Gandhi, who initially refused the label anarchism, but eventually accepted it because he eventually decided that anarchism and nonviolence did go together correctly and the anarchists who believed in violence were, were mistaken. And to me, those, you know, Tolstoy, Gandhi, King, that's the, that's the side I want to be on. But also when the, when the red and the white army are both rampaging through Ukraine, it was pretty great that Nestor Machno put together the black army and for a while at least fought them both off and became a hero of the villagers. So that's a, that's the, I also think it's good that we defeated the Nazis. Um, so that's, that's the, that's the problem, isn't it? Yes. No, I'm, I'm totally a would-be pacifist, but then the trouble is there are circumstances where it seems you can't be. Um, I've now forgotten the other... Well, the other thing would be to say Dewey's... We talked about this earlier, right? So if Dewey's committed to a notion of progress, he's committed to the idea, deeply committed to the idea, that progress actually comes from improved knowledge. He thinks basically science is giving us a much better hold on the world. One of his favorite themes is that science has advanced much further than morals have, and that morals and politics need to catch up to the knowledge revolution, and that intelligence, just like it's a solution in science, is a solution to our moral and political problems as well. Yeah, so one of Kropotkin's two or three most famous books is called Mutual Aid, A Factor in Evolution. And it makes this exact argument. This is an argument that I do, that I do not agree with, that, 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 that you can do a science of, of morals and, and find the truth um, that way. Uh, with that said, going, going back to the topic of expertise. So for me, the problem, um, and you and I have talked about this, you know, outside of the podcast, Someone, I think it's, a, it's either Proudhon or Bakunin, one of the two prominent anarchists in the previous generation or two before Kropotkin says that, of course, as anarchists, we will respect expertise and experts, and we will respect them because we, we trust them. And if you just walk into the room and declare yourself an expert, you're not going to get any trust that way. And I think that's the objection. So... When you see people who are uh, doing the vaccine denial right now, well, they they do not trust the experts. And it seems to me that not trusting experts in America right now is a really, really reasonable position. And there are lots of so-called experts in America who I do not trust. Obviously, most famously, the people in charge of Wall Street will assure you over and over and over again they're the experts, they have the right degrees, we should trust them. This is not true, John, and nothing you can do or say can make me believe that. I happen to believe it uh, for the people who made the vaccines, but if someone doesn't believe it, who am I to say that they are, they are wrong? Oh, you should uh, distrust some experts, but not others. And I am the expert to tell you which experts to trust and which experts to not trust. That seems like a losing argument. Well, except that, I mean, now we have to go to thinking about it in terms of social costs, right? So you would have to say, okay, you're free to not get vaccinated because you don't want to be vaccinated. But what are, what does that mean in terms of the health workers who are dealing with, you know, over overpopulated emergency rooms because you didn't get vaccinated. So there have to be costs to these decisions in the same kind of way that unfortunately we've done a bad job of having costs. No one went to prison for the 2008 financial scandals, but they should have that there is obvious social costs to the action of these so-called experts. And not only was there a lot of fraud, but even in well-meaning cases where they pretended to a certainty they didn't have any right to pretend to, um, you know, there should be cost. So I, I'm fine with, you know, 
okay, don't trust the experts, make your own decisions. But then to think that you, you also should be able to do that and not take any responsibility for the consequences of your decision, that's where I draw the line. I mean, we can, if anarchism just means everyone can do what they want and have never have to, to be accountable for what they do, then count me out. <laughs> yeah, I don't, and I don't, and I don't think there's any, except for there's there's except for this tradition that's sometimes called you know egoist or egotist anarchism. That's generally not the that's generally not the view. And no, I don't, I don't believe that either. That people should be able to do whatever they want to um, without the cost, uh, without paying the cost. But when I look out, it seems to me that the 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 people who are uh, anti-vaccine, many of whom are non-white people, these are the people who are paying the cost right now for what America has been for the past hundreds of years. And it seems to me that now is the wrong time to ask them whether they are the white working class or uh, a black community mistrustful of the medical establishment. We're not gonna, we're not gonna get them on board with, oh, here now, now is the time that you have to trust the experts and bear the personal responsibility in this moment. Without even mentioning, you know, one of the reader, one of my uh, listeners emailed me that, you know, the reason why we have Omicron is because we, we hoarded the vaccine. We didn't make enough of it, and we didn't give it uh, out for free to Africa. That's why that's why Omicron exists. But I don't hear anyone saying that the people at Moderna need to go to jail for all the things they did to make sure that their vaccine was very expensive. But I hear all sorts of things about these uh, regular working class, real Americans who should go to jail because they're not getting the vaccine. And Omicron wouldn't be here if the people at Moderna had just made their goddamn vaccine free. Well, and effectively, in the US, the vaccine was free. It's true about the African point. But the issue here, I mean, then we get into really deep waters, right? But the issue here is self-destructive behavior and how you're trying to you know, get people to not have self-destructive behavior. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the fact that they're being manipulated by you know, a group of people who are damn well vaccinated themselves, <laughs> but who are then for, for sheer political gain in the accumulation of power, convincing people to be, you know, anti-vax. So uh, it's, it's trickier than just to say, well, they have their God-given right to not trust experts because experts are, they're actually getting misinformation and trusting the wrong voices, voices that are manipulating them. And so it's, you know, it's more complicated, I think, than just, you know, don't trust the experts. Sure. Uh, in, 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 in the long run, sorry, in the short run, in terms of right now, certainly it's more complicated than that. In the long run, it seems to me that precisely as you say, the reason people are doing this is the accumulation of power and the accumulation of wealth. And so what we need no, to no, no. do- But there's another factor. Okay. The factor is also- the sources of information. And so you can talk about, clearly there's been media centralization. There's the fact that of the long tail, right? So there's, you know, in some sense you can say all the information is out there, but the information that filters through to 90% of the population comes from four sources, um, you know, just for sake of exaggeration. But so, it, it's not just the concentration of power, it's the concentration of communication to go back to Dewey's term. And so the amount of misinformation and the amount of lack of information. So to what extent do people even know about you know, denying the vaccine to Africa or the malfeasance on Wall Street? Then that information doesn't even get through to people. Yeah, I, of course, I agree. And that's why, to me, the enemy is this, this centralization, this centralization, which is what begets all, all of these problems. And to go back to Dewey's argument, <laughs> to, okay, I'll, let me sit, go back to Dewey's argument. The ar Dewey would say, and I think this is true, that in a different world with a different education system and with neighborhoods 
that were actually filled with people, including immunosuppressed people who knew one another and scientists who they knew, as opposed to all the scientists living in a different neighborhood, which is also filled with engineers uh, and doctors and lawyers. Um, if we lived in that world, I don't think this would be a problem. And therefore, my call is to get closer to that world in every way possible and insisting on the sacredness of whatever thing you're insisting on in the, not, not you, John, but right, when, yeah. whenever someone is calling for the vaccines or Anthony Fauci or the Supreme Court to be held sacred, you are actually, even if you are right in this case, and I almost always agree with those people, Roe v. Wade, I, I mean, I don't consider Roe v. Wade sacred. And I saw all of these calls for the sacred Roe v. Wade. And it seems to me that we need women to have access to abortions in this country, which is very different from saying Roe v. Wade cannot be overturned. And that's what I'm trying to switch us from. That sort of, oh, let's get the centralized thing right. And then the people who are wrong just need to deal with it to how can we create a country where this sort of misinformation and lack of fraternity uh, ceases to exist or at least becomes a much smaller factor in the country. And I see a blueprint, an incomplete blueprint for that in Dewey and, and also Kropotkin. Right. And the, the response is the plague and climate change are global, not local problems. That a solution based on decentralization seems grossly inadequate to problems that are such a vast scale. Yeah, I don't, I, I do not think that is true in the long run. And I think if we had done something different for the past hundred years, as for what happens right now, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know, John. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just you can't, a local community can't solve the problem of COVID. Yeah, of course. The point, that's the point of saying that by being even trying to have a national solution can't solve the problem of COVID. That's why Omicron's here, because we ignored Africa. So it's, it's a very large scale problem. And because of that, the local is can't, I, I just can't see the local as possibly being the site of solution. On its own, it can't be. So there, of course not. On its, on its own, it can't be. I agree. But this goes back to, you know, the very first episode. The, the reason, when, when DC makes a decision, when they make a decision in Washington, you and I, I mean, except for occasional moments of, of civil disobedience, uh, you, you and I do it. We follow it. We are the local in that act. In the same way that I don't think you can say, I agree with Dewey and Kropotkin, there is not an individual and society. There are individuals working together, shaped by and shaping society. Centralization is just a form of localism that has a central intelligence instead of a decentralized intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I think from Dewey's point of view, the issue would be the passivity, right? So what we're saying is, we have, so we have, this, we have this plague, and in this plague, a certain community, a community of scientists, actually does gather itself together in relation to a common problem. How do we create a vaccine? How do we have other measures to combat this plague. And they, working in a very Deweyan fashion, come up with some proposed solutions. The trouble is that we then receive them passively and just do what we're told to do or don't do what we're told yeah. to do, one or the other. But we haven't been active participants in the creation of the solution. So the issue is, first of all, is, you know, how do we deal with what Dewey doesn't seem to want to think about all the cases where we're just going to be passive recipients? I mean, that's just going to happen all the time, just by the nature of expertise. Um, and then um, how to multiply the cases 
where in fact we're not passive, but we're more active. So certainly, you know, you want to say there are all kinds of decisions being taken on the national level and where we say, oh, we'll let the government do it, where Dewey would say that's really bad. You know, so take a park system. A park system shouldn't be run by the local government. It should be run by community groups who take responsibility for creating their own park, maintaining it, changing it when the community needs change, et cetera. Um, so he wants much more active citizenry, um, you know, and, but it just gets tough when it comes to, I mean, I guess we could have a local cooperative to fix our cars and all learn how to fix our cars together. And, you know, the neighbor, you take the, you know, neighborhood Saturdays, we'd all gather around with our broken cars, but it's damn hard to figure out we do that to, you know, DNA sequence the virus. It seems to me it would be easy to use it to fix climate change. Well, that's the collective action problem. Well, I mean, I want to, I, I don't want to, this to go on too long and take up too much of your time. And like I said, we can talk some more, but it seems to me that the climate change issue, like if you, man, if you taught me how to put uh, solar panels on someone's roof, I would just do it all over the neighborhood. Um, but I don't know how, there's no way for me to right. know how, and you could do that in every neighborhood. You could do that in every neighborhood and you can wire the houses together. People say we need this huge national grid to move the energy around. Well, wire all the houses together and all of a sudden you've got a huge national grid, but we are waiting for Washington, for the federal government to pass a bill that says the national grid is going to be created. And they are waiting through so many regulatory and corporate hurdles. And all you got to do is connect every house to the three houses closest to it. And you have got a national grid. Now someone is going to say, oh, well, you would need a bigger line to connect Durham and Chapel Hill. Well, Durham and Chapel Hill can do that once all the houses are connected. And then Chapel Hill and Graham can be connected and then Durham and Raleigh can be connected and you will get a national grid. But no one, not only is no one trying, it would probably be illegal to try. And that's where I see Dewey and Kropotkin and decentralization having the answer to something like climate change. People say, what can I do? And the answer is there isn't much you can do, but that's more because corporations and governments are blocking you from doing it or have created a world in which you cannot even conceive of doing it, then there's actually nothing you can do. Yeah, right. I mean, that's certainly Dewey's point of view that we've been, that kind of ability to act has been in all kinds of ways. Right. So good. We've solved climate change. Okay, good. We'll do the virus next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't solved that one yet. Well, I mean, obviously, okay, so I'll solve the virus also, but I can't, uh, this is, this is a future solution, but this is what Kropotkin says. And I think dude would say it also, we don't need to have scientists be this it, elite, you know, which is not to say that you want someone making a vaccine who hasn't just completely dedicated their life to science. But there's lots of people who would love to dedicate their life to science who never had a chance, who failed that first chemistry class and never got a chance to dedicate their life to science because we have created this meritocratic system of winners and losers. And then the pandemic comes and we don't have enough scientists because we threw all these losers on the pile because we didn't think we needed them. And boy, oh boy, could we use them now. But we decided it was better to do it the other way. Yeah, so we have false scarcity. Yes, absolutely. False scarcity of human talent from a system that calls people rather than, calls members of the herd out of uh, useful pursuits of talent as opposed to tries to include as many people as possible. Right. Which is why I can't do anything about climate change because I don't know how. Right. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, John. Uh, this was such a pleasure. Yeah, this has been fun and I, I hope some people at least will enjoy it as much as we have talking to <laughs> no, no one will enjoy it as much as we have, but some people will enjoy it. Thank you, John. 
Okay, sounds good. Okay, well, as you heard, John and I really enjoyed recording that. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. Remember, this is an entirely listener-supported show. No ads, no paywall, no grants, no anything. Just you and your mutual aid. So if you can, please go to everydayanarchism.com and make a monthly contribution. You can also support the show by telling a friend, mentioning it on social media, or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, feel free to send in a question or comment to me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. All that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.